Welcome to Love Yourself So Matcha, the podcast where we get up close and personal with mental health issues. In each episode, you will learn more about eating disorders, body image, self-love, and appreciating yourself. I'm Cindy. And I'm Lily. And we hope that you will join us on our journey to loving ourselves so matcha. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning into episode two of the Love Yourself So Matcha podcast. For today's episode, we have a very special guest, Ms. Harriet Fru, who will be providing us with a professional perspective on eating disorders. Hi there. Welcome, Harriet. <laughs> we are really excited to have you with us today. Before we begin, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Harriet Fru. I'm an eating disorder therapist. So I've been working in this field for a very long time. Um, I work in a specialist adult eating disorder service in the UK, United Kingdom. Um, but then I also do some of my own private work and like online courses and various things. Um, I've also got a podcast. Like I'm really passionate about sort of spreading the word about recovery from eating disorders and, um, you know, educating people to learn more about all of this area. Um, and I really like doing Instagram as well. And um, I'm at the eating disorder therapist there. So I really enjoy the kind of creative aspects as a kind of balance to my therapy work with um, clients. Wow, that's awesome. Um, also, would you mind telling us a little bit about your story and why you decided to become an eating disorder therapist? Sure. So um, I suffered from bulimia nervosa in my late teens um, through to my um, sort of mid-twenties. I had bulimia for about seven years and um, I very much came into this whole area as the kind of wounded healer because of when I was really seeking out help, there was very, very limited support for bulimia back in the UK, um, you know, several years ago now. And um, I decided quite early on, oh, I really want to make a difference and for other people to have a different experience from me. So I decided when I was about 23 that I wanted to train as a therapist. And then I sort of started my training when I was sort of just 25, a couple of years later, yeah, so that, and that was sort of my journey in really. And then I sort of started um, seeing my first clients when I was around 29 and have been working ever since really. But, um, but yeah, so it was from my own personal experience was re- really the kind of the trigger for working in this field. So that's definitely really interesting, um, becoming a eating disorder therapist. So we're kind of interested on what kind, what does that work kind of involved or entail? Sure. I see patients or patients, clients um, with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, um, OSFED, (laughs) people with disordered eating, people with poor body image. Um, So it involves doing psychological therapy to help people kind of heal from their eating disorder. That involves kind of work in terms of understanding the past and like looking at maybe different things that may have caused the eating disorder. So people can kind of gain insight and understanding into the sort of triggers and things like that. Um, But it's also really equipping people with sort of skills and, um, you know, things they can do um, in the present to help them um, overcome their eating disorder. So it's kind of a combination really of working on more symptom symptom-based issues, but also looking at kind of the deeper stuff, which I guess sometimes might involve trauma for some people, or it could involve other sort of distressing events or things that happened to them when they were younger. That is really amazing. I love how you're taking your own experiences and using them to help more people. 
But to get started with some basic eating disorder knowledge, what are the most common types of eating disorders? So I guess the most common, well, no, not the most common eating disorder, the most well-known eating disorder is anorexia nervosa. That's the one people have often heard of and where people will sort of lose quite a large amount of weight by controlling what they eat, often over-exercising. If they're female, they might lose their period. Yeah, that's that's the one that kind of people are, are most aware of. It's the one that's often most in the media. I mean, it has the highest mortality rate of any mental health illness. So I guess that's why it gets such a lot of attention. Um, but many more people um, suffer with eating disorders who are not underweight. For example, people with bulimia nervosa, people with bulimia nervosa are often and normal weight or overweight. And they're often restricting their eating, but then this is sort of interspersed with um, very large binges um, on food. And a binge means eating a very large amount of food in a small amount of time, having a real loss of control around the episode and often eating in secrets. And um, with bulimia, people will then purge the food after eating through self-induced vomiting, taking laxatives or sometimes over-exercise. So again, you know, bulimia is a um, really sort of um, detrimental and harmful disorder. It does a lot of damage to the teeth, can really impact sort of the digestive system and the esophagus. Um, and, um, you know, people can get really disturbed um, electrolytes in their body with um, unstable potassium and sodium levels due to vomiting, which can be really, really lethal when people are vomiting multiple times. Um, there's also binge eating disorder. Um, so binge eating disorder is very similar to bulimia in that, again, people tend to restrict and then have large binges, but there's not the purging element evolved in binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder as well, you know, there's awful, often an awful lot of shame around that as well. And, and people often end up gaining a large amount of weight because of obviously the size of the binges are really, really large. So yes, that's binge eating disorder. And then there's OSFED, which is, I can never remember what it stands for, other specified eating and feeding disorder. I don't know who comes up with these memorable names. <laughs> um, but that's basically, if you don't fall nicely and neatly into one of the other categories, and actually that's probably true for most people. Um, you know, so someone in OSFED, for example, may be restricting as someone with anorexia would, but they may have a body mass index, which is um, not in the underweight range. So that would be called then, that's atypical anorexia and that would be under OSFED, or it could be someone maybe that's purging, but not binging. So you can, you can have a some mix of symptoms and still, um, you know, equally an eating disorder that should be, you know, noticed and treated and taken just as seriously, but it just means you don't fall nice and neatly into a category. So those are the kind of main ones, I guess. In the UK now, um, ARFID is being recognised even more, which is when people restrict their eating due to um, texture and taste and smell of food rather than weight and shape concerns. But that's still a bit sort of on the, on the edge of the eating disorders. And then I guess many people as well fall into disordered eating where they may not meet a diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, but they still have a lot of symptoms that are impacting their daily life. So that's the kind of whistle-stop tour. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely um, really insightful. And it's interesting to learn that there's so many types of eating disorders. Um, so we're wondering, like, what are some of the symptoms of an eating disorder for the most common eating disorders? Sure. So, I mean, I guess something that's pretty much seen in all the eating disorders is restrictive eating. Um, so that means kind of, um, yeah, 
as it sounds like really, you know, limiting what you eat. So it could be through kind of calorie counting, limiting what you eat in terms of calories, could be like eliminating a food group. It could be sort of delaying eating, um, just not really eating enough. Um, more and more people as well, I think, go into eating disorders now through the kind of wellness route where they're trying to be like super healthy, super clean, and then sort of eliminate, eliminating food groups through that. And I guess what tends to happen is as well, then when people are restricting their eating in some way, that often inevitably leads to other disordered eating behaviors because the human body doesn't like being starved. So when the human body is starved and restricted, then you start to see these other behaviors like binge eating or emotional eating, sort of loss of control eating, which then trigger the the compensatory strategies, like, you know, the kind of purging. Um, so it's kind of a whole vicious loop, really. And I guess what's overarching as well with all the eating disorders is that self-worth has become disproportionately linked to weight and shape. So someone with an eating disorder, like if you think about having a pie chart um, with different segments and terms of, you know, for each segment, you know, how you evaluate your worth, if you have an eating disorder, so much of your worth is around your weight and also your control around food and other areas like, um, I don't know, kind of hobbies, friendships, travel, study become smaller and smaller and smaller. So that's, I mean, I could probably say more, but I think that's kind of some of the highlights. Yeah, those are some really relatable symptoms. I think I remember becoming extremely perfectionistic during that time, which is weird for me because I'm not a super detail oriented person. And also, I think this kind of ties back to like causes of eating disorders. I know it's very personal for everyone, but I think there's a certain um, sort of similarity between why eating disorders arise. So I've heard like it can either be um, the person's environment or it sometimes is self-imposed or it's relationships. And I think there's also been talk about it being genetic or people having certain personality traits that may lead to eating disorders. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, sure. So I guess people with eating disorders, again, generalizing, tend to be people that are kind of highly sensitive and maybe prone to being anxious and also perhaps a bit prone to being perfectionistic as well. Perfectionist, particularly probably more as well with anorexia, I think, than the others. I mean, I think as well, some studies have shown that um, people with anorexia show very similar sort of um, genetic traits to extreme mountaineers that kind of do like you know, crazy, um, well, I would say crazy, you know, putting themselves in very high risk situations where you have to like push yourself to extremes. So we, we kind of know there is something about personality types. But yeah, it's a kind of complex mix of genetics and in environments. Obviously, you can be born with some of those genetic traits, and you will never necessarily develop an eating disorder. But I guess if certain environmental stresses happen to you, you could be much more vulnerable. So people with eating disorders you know, I think a really common thing is they have low self-worth. Generally, people don't feel good about themselves. And that has often been because of things that have happened in childhood. So it could have been things that happened in family. You know, it could have been stuff that happened at school. <laughs> um, sounds relatable. Um, yeah, not some way not feeling good enough. You know, maybe being bullied. Um, also, like if you went through a major stress as a child, like maybe a, a divorce or a bereavement or something that was just really, really difficult. Um, and then I think as well, kind of dieting as well is a bit of a trigger. Obviously, many people will diet and won't develop an eating disorder. But I think if you couple dieting with low self-worth 
and toxics, you know, and sort of stresses, sorry, then that whole mix together and, and probably the genetic per- perfectionism as well to take it to extremes, that's a really toxic mix then for the potential development of an eating disorder. Yeah, so um, we're kind of interested about um, maybe like eating disorders common in athletes. Both Lily and I were kind of in the performing arts section, but both of our, like, because Lily does figure skating and I do dancing, um, but we're, we were wondering, like, um, if there are, like, some kind of common eating disorders or, like, a pattern in eating disorder found within athletes. Sure. I mean, I, th- I think the thing that jumps to mind straight away for me is, like, there was a study done, like, many years ago, um, I think it was in 1999 or something, but it's still a really kind of, um, you know, um, significant study where they looked at critical experiences that impact the development of someone's body image and competitive sport is in there as one of the critical experiences that can have an influence on probably developing more negative body image um, and it's not that one thing alone like there's a whole list of critical experiences like um you know your self-esteem like your mother's relationship with food your, you know a whole load of things but definitely if you're in competitive sport I think from a young age um you know there is just more pressure isn't there perhaps in terms of what you eat and if you're a dancer maybe being in front of the mirror being in a leotard being exposed to all those things I think it definitely is like more of a risk factor and I'm thinking as well about um there's just been some sort of news headlines this week in the UK about um Gymnast, there's been a gymnast speaking out about just how um, grueling her routine was and how she was criticised with her body shape and, um, you know, strict dieting and all these things. So I think it's really tricky, isn't it? Because I think being an athlete, in a way, you are really praised for being like lean and, um, you know, perhaps looking a certain way or being really fast or um, aesthetically looking good. Um but then often sometimes people have to, to maintain that there's disordered eating going on or an eating disorder. But it becomes quite confusing, I think, because of um, you're kind of getting loads of validation in a way for what you're doing. But the only way you can maintain that in a way is through disordered eating. So I'm thinking as well, um, sometimes we've worked in, in the service I work in with um, jockeys, you know, who, who ride horses. And there's so much pressure there to be really small and light and to weigh, a, you know, a very, very um, small amount. But sometimes as well, the people we work with, they can only maintain that through a lot of purging. Um, but then they're already praised for winning races and being light. Um, so it's almost become like um that even when we see it as an eating disorder it's become part and parcel of their lives almost so yes I don't know if that answers your question I feel like I've gone off of tangents a little bit but um I think being an athlete I mean it's a shame isn't it because I think obviously like doing sports and being active and you know there's so many positives around that as well but I think if you're in competitive sports you probably just have to be a little bit more careful maybe that you could be vulnerable to developing an eating disorder, perhaps particularly in specific areas of, you know, specific types of sport. That is such a relatable description because I remember having an eating disorder and receiving validation for disordered eating, which quickly becomes this circular cycle that is so hard to get out of. So sort of as a next step for somebody with an eating disorder, what is the first step to recovery that they can take? 
So I guess, I mean, I'm thinking particularly in the UK, what you would advise is people to go and speak to their doctor first. Like that's normally the route in the UK of how to get referred for specialist help. So I think, um, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's even a step before that. I mean, maybe the step before that is even just telling somebody, you know, opening up and saying it out loud, confiding in someone that you trust. And then the next step is perhaps going to your doctor and seeing if you can get referred to get specialist help. Um, because I think as well for, you know, when you get stuck in the cycle of an eating disorder, I mean, people sometimes do recover on their own, but I think, you know, you can shorten that recovery time a lot more. And I think often as well, people just do need help because eating disorders are quite complex psychological illnesses. And um, once you get down that eating disorder sort of rabbit hole, it can be quite hard to escape from it without some sort of professional support. Yeah, that's definitely really interesting. Um, so what forms of treatment are effective for like the most common types of eating disorders, maybe like anorexia or bulimia? So, I mean, again, in the UK, I mean, the main therapies that are used are so for anorexia nervosa and um, cognitive behavior therapy is used. That's quite a popular therapy. Also, there's some something called mantra which is um, kind of combining different specific anorexia approach kind of treatments created by the Maudsley Hospital in London. So that does a lot of work on looking at um, sort of identity, on rigid thinking, on how you manage your emotions. It's like a whole, they've created like this kind of whole manual. And if you have individual sessions, it can be um, about 40 sessions. And I think it's a bit less if you do a group, but very sort of specialized treatment for anorexia nervosa. Family therapy is also particularly helpful for anorexia nervosa and particularly people are living at home because of if the family can create an environment that is supportive and motivational for change, that's going to really help because of obviously people might be with their family a lot more than with their therapist. Motivational enhancement therapy is used across the eating disorders because people with eating disorders are often very ambivalent about change. So it's really helpful to work on motivation. Cognitive analytic therapy is also used in the UK, perhaps more so for anorexia. And that looks more at the kind of broader picture of issues. So looking at like relationships, self-care, communication, looking more at earlier life as well. And for bulimia in the UK, cognitive behavior therapy is, is probably one of the most popular. Also, um, compassion-focused therapy is also um, quite popular as well. And actually, that's used for anorexia nervosa as well. So, and I guess that's not, there's probably more, but um, I'm just thinking those are the kind of the main ones that um, I use myself or have had exposure to. But I think it's not limited to those. Um, and I think... There is no kind of complete gold standard for treatment of eating disorders. And I think particularly anorexia nervosa, um, you know, it's quite a complex illness to treat. And um, there's not kind of like a magic wand or a, a definite path for treatment. You know, I think if you interviewed a lot of people that recovered, their stories would all be very, very different. Also for um, some other eating disorders like binge eating disorder or Ausfed, what are the approaches to those? I'm kind of interested to know. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, binge eating disorder, again, in the UK, probably cognitive behavior therapy is the most um, popular um, and most widely used. And I think OSFED really, I mean, again, all of these therapies that I've mentioned could be relevant for OSFED because just because you don't meet a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder, I mean, all these therapies are still going to be really, really relevant. 
in some ways, diagnosis is kind of, it can be a bit limiting, I think, really, because at the end of the day, if you're living with disordered eating and it's impacting your life and preventing you getting on with things, that's what you need to look at, really. Not, you know, if you fit neatly into a tick box. Um, I actually thought it was interesting how earlier you mentioned, like, if you talk to different people who had anorexia, their recovery process is different or like kind of like the process that they went through. Lily and I were actually talking and we went through like a very different process, which I thought was really interesting, kind of tying along the like um, recovery process. So how do you deal with post eating disorder trauma? Um, For example, how do you deal with weight gain if that occurs? Or how do you just approach normal life after your eating disorder? Sure. I think um, just a change in body image can be really, really hard, can't it? And I think um, coming to terms with changes in your body can often lag behind some of the other treatment. You might say have done some of the work on emotions, you might be eating more, you might be doing some of these other things. But then the body image bit, I think, does sometimes take a bit longer, Um, you know, particularly as we do live in culture where, you know, there's thin bodies are kind of put on pedestals, aren't they? And kind of idealized. And there are constant messages in the media that reinforce that all the time. So you're kind of facing an ongoing battle, I guess, in managing that. Um, but I think the main thing that helps is like, obviously, if you, if, if you, you know, you might not feel comfortable with weight gain, but actually, it's trying to like, look at the broader picture of your life and what you gain in recovery, because of, Actually, if you have energy to do things, if you're feeling more social again, so you can hang out with your friends, um, you know, if you're able to study again, if you're not feeling the cold all the time, if you're, you know, if you're able to just kind of live again, you know, I think so many of those kind of benefits can really help, you know, so to kind of broaden that picture of recovery, really. So in a way, you may not feel completely comfortable with the changes in your body, but you almost kind of gain so much more than that. Um, you're regaining your life again so I think that's the main thing that really helps and I guess just with body image in general trying to work more towards like body neutrality and like appreciating your body for what it can do rather than just aesthetics stopping things like weighing yourself or body checking all the time talking to yourself kindly practicing self-compassion all of those things can really help um, you manage um, changes in you know your body Yeah, I love that statement you said about getting your life back. Um, I recovered from my eating disorder pretty recently, like early 2020. And the change in personality from when you're in an eating disorder and when you're recovered is so drastic. It really is like getting your life back. But for those people who don't have an eating disorder and don't really have an experience with an eating disorder, How do you recognize when someone close to you is developing one and how can you support them? Sure. Well, I guess, um, you know, sometimes you might see a change in weight, particularly if someone's developing anorexia nervosa. Um, But then obviously with a lot of eating disorders, that's not necessarily a a sign or a symptom. Um, I think, you know, a a main thing is just when people show a change in their mental well-being, so they may become more anxious, they're mood drops they become more withdrawn you know they don't want to do the things that they would have enjoyed doing previously maybe they're just becoming a lot more funny with food you know wanting to kind of like count calories or you you know you might see them using my fitness pal or something you know you might find if they're binging that you see like um lots of food disappearing people could be disappearing to the toilet after meals maybe 
Um, I mean, I think it's quite hard sometimes because I think eating disorders, um, there's so much secrecy and shame around eating disorders. So people often become really, really good at hiding their symptoms. But I think the main thing is, I think you could probably just tell someone that is off almost with their mental well-being, because I think the more an eating disorder takes a hold, the more someone becomes just really withdrawn and, um, you know, just doesn't engage with life in the same way because of food preoccupation and body image. It's just kind of engulfed them. If you end up knowing or like you're kind of aware that someone close to you has an eating disorder, um, how do you approach them? For example, like how do you avoid different triggers? Sure. I mean, it's, I think it's a really tricky thing, isn't it? Because I think as well, um, there's just the whole thing around motivation with eating disorders about recovery because of a lot of people might feel really ambivalent about change or they may be still in the stage where they're in denial about having a problem. So that can be quite tricky sometimes. So I think if someone's just really um, sort of pre-contemplative almost about even having an eating disorder, if you spoke to them about it, they're probably just going to dismiss it or kind of, um, yeah, just just not really engage with the conversation. But I guess it, sort of helpful things to do are, you know, just to ask someone like, you know, how are you doing? I noticed that you're a bit more withdrawn lately. Um, I'm concerned about you. So kind of asking more of those kind of like warm, kind, empathetic kind of um, questions or statements to encourage someone to open up. And I think that's much more helpful than, say, charging in and like um, saying, oh, where's all this food gone? Or, you know, I don't know, being being perhaps critical or being really emotional about something. Because I think as well, if someone's already feeling very secretive and ashamed, if they are met with that kind of response from their loved ones, they're much more likely to withdraw and, you know, not open up. But it can be a bit tricky, I think, sometimes. Yeah, for sure. I remember being triggered by the most trivial things. So it's definitely important for people around someone with an eating disorder to, in a way, tread lightly. But so for somebody like currently with an eating disorder who's maybe not ready to talk to someone or not ready to come out of that yet, do you have any words for them or any advice for them? Sure. I mean, I suppose it's it's just helpful perhaps to, if you notice that maybe, even if you're not ready to talk to anyone about it yet, if you notice that your relationship with food is a bit off, it might just be helpful just to take a step back and just reflect on what's been going on recently, you know, because maybe there's been some stress or a bit of a trigger or, or, you know, maybe you've just been kind of dieting really strictly and then that's kind of got a bit out of control I think it's just the first step is really just having a bit of awareness, really. And maybe just almost thinking as well, like, how is this helping me cope? But also, what am I losing from doing this? And almost just kind of doing that balance sheet a bit in your head. Because I think, particularly in the early stages of an eating disorder, it can all feel a bit like honeymoonish and seductive. And, oh, this is really great. I found the answer. But quite quickly, it can slip into that quite dark place where you're really isolated and alone and anxious and shameful and lots of the negative start to creep to the surface. So I suppose it's just being brave enough to perhaps be able, be able to be a bit honest with yourself. And I guess the next step would be to just perhaps even think about who could you maybe talk to 
And but I guess as well, there's got to be trust. And ideally, you want to talk to someone who's going to be accepting, kind, who's not going to react in a really um, overly kind of um, triggering way. So identifying the right person could be helpful. Yeah, that's definitely really helpful. Um, so something that I've noticed or that we kind of noticed like is kind of common within like eating disorders is obsession, like either like obsession over calories or obsession over like um, the way that your body looks. Um, so how do you how would you recommend to like deal with obsession? Sure. Well, I think I think the tricky thing is, is like when you developed an eating disorder, you've become kind of like super focused haven't you in like one direction you again going back to the self-worth thing what has become the way you you feel good now by restricting food by doing a certain amount of exercise by following your rules or whatever and in a way that feels kind of right and every time you feel that you're following those rules you, you kind of get a little bit of a win don't you and say the number on the scales is going down you keep getting pulled back into that again um, so, I mean, I think, again, what can help is like for most people, although the obsession or compulsion can feel very strong day to day, if you ask them, like, you know, do you still want to be living with this in five years time or 10 years time? Um, most people be like, no way. You know, this isn't really what's it, I don't want to be living like this. Um, so it's trying to help people get back in touch with their values and think, you know, what is it that's really important to me? You know, what do I want to do with my life? Where, what am I interested in? What do I want my relationships to look like? And starting to think a bit how compatible maybe is that with what I'm doing? And I think just initially beginning to have that awareness can be, it can at least put a bit of reflection space between your thinking almost and then like what you're doing. And then you might need some support, I think, like, you know, if it's become really obsessional and compulsive, you might need some support to really gradually reduce those behaviours, because they will often become as well very safe. So but in therapy, you would probably address those in quite um, a gradual way. So you're not suddenly like, pulling the carpet from beneath your feet, you know, with your coping strategy, you're more kind of like taking it away bit by bit, and also trying to rebuild healthier coping strategies instead. Yeah, for sure. I think I, I'm kind of interested in when you said that these coping uh, strategies sort of um, dealing with eating disorders and obsession is almost like a safe space. That sort of, to me, relates back to diet culture in our society right now. I think it's so ingrained and it's so popular. It's almost like a trend to go on these different diets and that I think starts the cycle of disordered eating, but now it's right now it's being praised and seen as a good thing. I wanted to know your thoughts on diet culture and how that affects people with an eating disorder. Sure. Well, I just, I just think it's um, so toxic and it's um, I think the tricky thing is, is it's so unconscious, isn't it in a way? Well, it's conscious and, un and unconscious, but from the moment, um, a child is born really they're exposed to it through um even like you know television programs or kind of films or people anything you watch from very young people tend to be kind of thin don't they or looking a certain way and 
we're always being told that we need to kind of lose weight and there's always stuff in the media. There's always stuff in social media. Um, I mean, it's just toxic, isn't it? Because I guess it's coming at us from so many angles. And I think the trouble is growing up in a culture like this as well, you tend to absorb it almost. I see it as a bit almost like a, like a religion, really. I'm not that I'm against religion, but I, ju I just think in a way that you're almost sort of indoctrinated with a way of viewing the world that you don't even question, you know, so you kind of, people just carry a lot of internalized sort of fat phobia, thin idealization without even really being aware of it, you know, but it's obviously leaking out through the way they, through their comments, through the way they're looking at things. I think it is really toxic and it makes me feel a bit weary talking about it really. Cause I think there's so many kind of positive challenges now that are coming up again, you know, um, pushing back against diet culture with like the health at every size movement body positivity body neutrality intuitive eating um but I think there's just such a long way to go still um you know I think it's still very hard as a young person growing up not to feel that you need to somehow shrink your body um if you're female and if you're male that you have to become probably like you know really muscular and lean or whatever to be okay and those things are seen as um something that's achievable and demonstrate self-control and there's almost a sort of superiority attached to being able to kind of control your body and I think those messages are ingrained so deeply in our culture that it's um you know there's a lot of work to be done but I think there's a shift I think things are changing yeah I know that like you're kind of talking about when we're talking about like um, diet culture, we're kind of talking about how the media portrays or like favors people that are like slim. And I was wondering, like, um, do you have like advice for dealing with body dysmorphia or body image or kind of like accepting your body for what it is? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the most profound things we can do is just put the blinkers on a bit to some of that social media stuff and be really conscious about what you absorb because I think you know for anybody if you're looking at images sort of fitspo that kind of stuff for even a certain time period every day it's going to be impacting how you feel about your body so yeah so I think that's a that's the kind of first thing I think as well you know for all of us this is a bit of pill to swallow but it's trying to kind of have a bit of a radical acceptance of the body that you have been genetically kind of born with. Because I guess for all of us, there's some room for a bit of um, manipulation or whatever, but, and, and I'm not, I'm just talking, I'm not talking about um, surgery or anything like that. I'm just talking about, you know, doing healthy exercise or whatever, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, like I know for myself, I'm um, more probably more pear shaped. So I carry more weight on my hips. And that's just kind of the way my body is, you, you know, and, and actually just coming to terms with that or the fact that I have curly hair or, um, you know, some of these things about me are just the way I am. And actually tr trying to kind of embrace who you are. I mean, it's, it's, it's a sounds like it sounds very simple, but it's very hard, can be really quite empowering, I think, rather than always like chasing some ideal that you feel that you should live up to um I think as well just um being aware of how you talk to yourself um you know a lot of people can be like super critical in their thinking like always comparing themselves to other people calling themselves like greedy or lazy or being really sort of unkind to you know to yourself and being able to kind of work on your thinking and offer yourself more kindness and compassion and acceptance can be really helpful 
um, not weighing yourself all the time, not body checking all the time, um, exposing yourself, I guess, to a range of bodies. You know, I think um, I, I just know myself, the more I've engaged with um, sort of the body positive movement and just looking at a range of accounts on Instagram, it does change how you perceive things and it changes how you feel about things and you realise how distorted the images are that you are shown in the kind of mainstream media all the time. Yeah, that's definitely really, really helpful and insightful. Um, so I think that's all the questions we had prepared today. Is there anything else you might want to talk about or um, any other topics? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I'm just really thankful that you've invited me on the podcast. Um, I guess I would just go and say as well, you know, do listen to my podcast as well, which is called The Eating Disorder Therapist for anyone listening. Um, but yeah, no, just thank you very much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so it was really interesting today learning about the different kinds of eating disorders, um, how to recognize an eating disorder and how to help other people with eating disorders. Um, so thank you so much, Harriet, for speaking with us today and providing us with so much valuable insight. Okay. Thank you. We really hope you all learned something from our talk with Harriet today. Definitely make sure to go check out her podcast, The Eating Disorder Therapist, as well as her Instagram. Also, The Eating Disorder Therapist with underscores between each word. There's a ton of really, really great resources there for anybody currently struggling with an eating disorder. So definitely make sure to visit her page. Thank you so much for listening. I hope everyone loves themselves so much and more after this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode. Updates will be posted on our Instagram and Facebook. Both handles are at loveyourselfsomatcha. Also make sure to check out our website, which will be linked in our bios. Bye!